It's a real pleasure to be here uh, with you today again, uh, another year. Um, I greatly appreciate you inviting me back again. Um, I, I think I've appeared before you six times before, and uh, that's provided me with plenty of uh, chances over the years to wear out my welcome. And um, so I'm, I'm very uh, flattered uh, that I haven't done so yet, uh, but this year gives me a, another opportunity to wear out my welcome, so I'll, I'll try not to. Um, I was looking at the calendar, and I noticed that uh, today is Friday the 13th. And I looked back, and this is, I've never spoken to this group on Friday the 13th. And to my memory, I haven't made a speech on Friday the 13th. Now, I'm not a superstitious guy, but if it's one thing, there's one thing the last few years have taught me, is to not place all your faith in one model of the world. So I'm going to knock on wood. What do you say? Um, and uh, wish myself some good luck. Um, so the usual topic of these January luncheons is the economic outlook. And um, I'm gonna, that's what I'm going to do today again. Um, and, but I'm going to place some special emphasis um, and spend a little more time than usual on the housing market. Um, it's been in the news the last week or two, and I, I thought it might be an appropriate uh, time and place to, to share some thoughts about that. Um, as usual, my remarks uh, reflect my own independent views and do not necessarily coincide with those of any of my colleagues, past or present, and there's a past uh, metal member of the Federal Open Market Committee here in the audience here, uh, my, my predecessor, Al Broadus, um, not necessarily shared by anyone else. We, we each speak um, our own independent views in, in public. So before I begin talking about the upcoming year, um, I think it would help be helpful to set the stage by looking back at last year's uh, RMA luncheon, Richmond RMA luncheon. Um, a year ago, I was thinking that real gross domestic product, our, our best measure of overall economic activity, uh, would grow at about 3%, 3 percent, 3, 3.5% 3 in 2011. Right now, it looks like we're going to get GDP growth of around 1.7% for 2011. That's a fairly big miss. Now, it is true that I can take some consolation in the fact that many private forecasters also projected growth of 3% or more for 2011. Um, but having said that, this sizable error illustrates the, an inconvenient truth uh, that even the best economic forecast is the midpoint of a fairly wide range of reasonably plausible uh, outcomes. And that's something to bear in mind anytime you're listening to an economic forecaster. Several unanticipated uh, developments contributed to these forecast misses. Commodity prices had already begun rising this time uh, a year ago when we met, uh, but energy and food prices continued to rise in the first half of 2011, and they rose um, uh, to the point where they significantly outpaced the predictions we had last January based on futures markets curves, which generally give the best, sort of more, most reliable a way of forecasting those, uh, those commodity market prices. That price surge that we saw, unanticipated price surge in the first half of the year, took a sizable bite out of real household incomes, and overall consumer spending uh, slowed down accordingly, as you'd expect. On top of that, um, or maybe below that, maybe that's the right phrase, the earthquake and tsunami um, in Japan uh, disrupted global supply chains in a number of industries. In the United States, the effects were most noticeable in the auto uh, market. As a result of these disturbances, uh, real GDP grew at a paltry eight-tenths of a percent annual rate uh, in, in the first half of 2011. 
Now, you would expect such transitory factors to have only limited implications for future growth. And indeed, auto production and sales recovered on the second half of the year and resumed their upward trend. And commodity prices fell in the second half of the year as well. And they, they've uh, retraced uh, and reversed much of the earlier dampening effect that they had on real household incomes. The more significant development over the course of uh, the past year, in my view, uh, for the economic outlook, is the growing sense, the growing sense of conviction uh, people have that there are relatively persistent impediments uh, holding back uh, the economic expansion in the United States. While the pace of growth has rebounded uh, since the first half of 2011, it looks like GDP growth um, averaged uh, only about 2.5% uh, at an annual pace over the second half of 2011. Moreover, if you look back to the beginning of the, the recovery, uh, when the re recession ended in the second quarter of 2009, if you look back to there and, and trace going forward, growth has averaged only 2.5% since the recession bottomed out. To put this in perspective, consider the last century and a half of real GDP growth. Over that period, real GDP has tracked remarkably close to a trend line representing growth at a 3% annual rate. Apart from the Great Depression and World War II, deviations from that trend have been relatively transitory, and recessions that we saw were followed by expansions at significantly greater than 3% uh, at an annual rate. In fact, it was commonplace to see growth of 5 or 6% in recoveries uh, coming out of a sharp recession. In this recession, a real GDP fell by over 5%, and we have not closed the gap between actual GDP and that trend line, where that trend line has kept going. Instead of catching up, we appear to be following a new, lower, parallel trend line uh, that's 5% below the old one. What is it that's hampering our recovery? The housing market tops the list, so let me talk about housing. Residential construction almost invariably expands quite rapidly at the beginning of a recovery, often because it's contracted quite sharply. Growth rates of 30% or more are quite, uh, are quite common. This time, home building has been basically flat. And as an example of a statistic you could cite, the number of single-family housing starts in 2011 is going to be basically the same as it was in 2009 uh, at the end of the recession. There are several understandable forces holding the housing market back. First, in many parts of the country, there are still more homes than households want. Looking back on the housing boom with the benefit of the hindsight, and I emphasize the benefit of hindsight, um, it's clear that mortgage underwriting standards were too lax in the housing boom. This was largely the result, I believe, of the distorted incentives and moral hazard associated with financial entities viewed as too big to fail or too big to fail without government support for their creditors. I've talked about this a lot in the last few years, so I, I don't want to repeat that narrative. Um, but the result of it is that in many regions of the country, uh, they're just simply oversupplied with housing right now. Mortgage underwriting standards have become significantly more conservative since the ha housing bust. And this is a second factor uh, that's restraining housing demand right now. Now, some of the tightened uh, credit standards represent 
uh, new regulatory constraints. Regulators have come in and said, no, you know, you need to be a little safer about how you do this. Particularly regulatory constraints on uh, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, the housing finance GSEs, who are now wards of the state. And they're now being managed, um, instead of for shareholder profit, uh, to minimize the losses uh, to the taxpayer, uh, who would, of course, bear them uh, if there were more losses. But some of the tightening in credit standards reflects the natural ebb and flow of credit terms over the course of a business cycle. Credit terms tighten in a downturn, and that's understandable because any given borrower is going to be riskier than they were in the upturn, all else held constant. And that's as it should be. An additional dynamic affecting the evolution of credit standards has to do with learning, just getting smarter over time about what we're doing. The housing boom and bust involved a lot of innovative mortgage products, and I think it taught us significant lessons about the risks associated with some of those new lending practices. And it also taught us something about the odds, previously viewed as quite low, of a broad and sustained decline in housing prices affecting the country as a whole. Um, this you can see a record of in uh, the transcripts of the Federal Open Market Committee meetings for the year 2006. We record our meetings in order to help us do the minutes faithfully, and with a five-year lag, we release those transcripts. So you can, you, can list, you can read every word said in the FOMC meetings for the year 2006. And this reveals a committee struggling with what was going on in the housing market. 2006 was before the dramatic rise in default rates, before there was some housing price fall, but before the dramatic collapse that accelerated in 2008. And you can see that there was tremendous uncertainty about what was going on going forward. I'd also comment that uh, these transcripts seem to have brought out a lot of Monday morning quarterbacking in a lot of people. Um, a lot of people think they were much brighter than we were at the time. Um, and I'm, I'm open to see what they wrote down in, in mid-2006. Certainly, this is, I don't want to be defensive about it, though. Uh, we all make mistakes. Um, so certainly, this isn't the, the first credit market that's um, experienced a cycle of, of overshooting um, and then retrenchment. I think those dynamics are natural in any lending market where there's some learning going on. And I'd cite the credit card market in the 1990s, which had its own subprime lending boom and bust where things went a little too far. You know, due to new technology and new underwriting, that you can go farther down the credit curve, but you don't know how far. Well, how do you find out? You go a little too far, and then you come back. And the market as a whole did that, and the market is in, in credit cards, and it did that. as a, That dynamic was present in the housing market, although, as I said, there were other things going on. As a result of all this, at this point in time, Borrowers and lenders now have, I believe, a much greater appreciation of the risks, the economic risks to them, associated with highly leveraged home ownership. And in light of that, I think a, a highly cautious attitude towards mortgage debt on the part of both borrowers and lenders makes abundant sense. So given the supply, the huge oversupply of housing, and the tighter credit, credit standards being applied, housing market appears to be in for a lengthy adjustment process. It, it's going to require substantial real income gains before demand grows its way into or catches up to the current supply of housing that we have on outstanding. 
On top of that, there's a, a mismatch problem that we have to solve. Um, in, in, and I say that in the sense that there are some households with homes and mortgages for which they aren't a good match. Either their income isn't sufficient anymore to support the mortgage they've got, or the equity in the home has uh, diminished or evaporated to the extent that uh, it's not a good balanced portfolio for that household. Or, you know, or essentially the same thing, that they've got too much housing leverage right now. Um, so as a society, the problem here is transitioning people into homes that they want, given their income and interest rates and home prices, and that they can afford, um, given uh, credit standards and, and the like. This is going to be a time-consuming process, and it has been. And a lot of it's happened already, but there's a lot that remains to be done. Unfortunately, for some households, this transition from a house you're mismatched with to a house you're a better match for involves delinquency and foreclosure. That's just the way the mechanism works. In such cases, the adjustment has been slowed um, by a couple of things. One is the inability of the servicing industry to handle the, this mountain of unanticipated foreclosures that came their way. Um, in addition, um, in many states, there are congestions in the judicial process that are slowing down the resolution of foreclosure cases. And in many cases, for very good reasons at times, to ensure procedural fairness, there have been regulatory interventions that have led to pauses or timeouts, temporary halts to the foreclosure process that just delay this resorting, this, this mismatch um, problem that I've, I've talked about. So I think a, a great deal of progress has been made in adjusting uh, to this new environment we have for housing, but I think substantial adjustment lies ahead. Um, and um, uh, home prices, thankfully, appear to have stabilized. This is the one bright spot in the housing market. Uh, you, you know, you think of bright spots associated with houses, housing prices rising. If we were seeing an acceleration of housing prices, I'd be a little bit disturbed. But home prices have essentially been flat. Uh, since 2009, at least if you look at non-distressed uh, sales. Distressed sales are something special. Uh, I think it's worthwhile uh, taking them apart. Part of the adjustment process um, in the housing market involves a broad movement away from owner-occupied housing uh, and toward rental housing, and I think this is a good thing. And you can see evidence of, of this in the vacancy rates for rental properties. Um, these have declined of late. And as a result, you're seeing firm, uh, firming in rental rates. Uh, and this is, of course, inducing um, an increase in the supply of rental housing. And in fact, we're seeing uh, the, the gains we have seen in residential construction have been in the multi-unit uh, rental uh, property segment. This appears to me to be a relatively persistent development. I think it represents a natural response to you know, this greater appreciation of the risks of leveraged home ownership. Um, and uh, a greater appreciation of um, uh, the fundamentals of the housing market. So I expect single-family home building to remain relatively soft for some time, um, and this transition to rental property to continue. I think we need to be patient with the housing market. I think we need to accept the fact uh, that it's, it, it will not figure prominently uh, in this recovery, at least not for several years. So this fall in housing prices that we experienced from uh, 2006 to 2009 um, eroded a substantial portion of the home equity uh, that households had uh, accumulated in the housing boom. 
Another facet of the adjustment process our economy is going through to the housing bust has been the, has shown up in the form of this propensity of households now uh, to pay down debt and to build up savings, and essentially to restore their balance sheet to a more desirable relationship to their income uh, and the opportunities they have. Consequence of this is that consumer spending has been expanding much more moderately uh, than is typical in um, an economic recovery. Consumer spending has also been dampened by labor market conditions, which have improved at a disappointingly slow pace since they bottomed out in early 2010. Over that period, early 2010 uh, to now, employment growth has averaged 120,000 jobs per month. At that rate, it would take four years to recover all the jobs lost in the recession and its immediate aftermath. Last month, we got a good payroll employment report, though. Uh, it showed 200,000 jobs were raised and uh, were, in, were, were added on net. And to me, that's a heartening sign of a potential firming trend. I'll emphasize potential uh, because, as uh, Al Broadus used to emphasize to me, you don't want to place too much faith in any one month's figures. But uh, we could be seeing a, a potential firming trend in the labor market here. So the evidence suggests that there's an impediment uh, to more rapid employment gains, um, and it's the magnitude of the mismatch between skills of the unemployed and the skills uh, most in demand by firms uh, that are experiencing expanding output. And I'm not sure how much I talked about this a year ago. Recessions and recoveries involve shifting resources from some sectors to some other sectors. And uh, that's just a natural response to new technologies emerging and the pattern of demand shifting away from some sectors and towards some other sectors. Many of the workers that leave declining industries in the downturn eventually find work in the newly expanding in industries in the, ex in the recovery. That search process can take some time, however, and it might require additional training since the skills of those released from the contracting sectors for example, construction, think home construction, may not line up exactly with the skills required in expanding sectors, think healthcare or more advanced manufacturing. There are frictions associated with this process of sectoral and occupational reallocation. They appear to be empirically significant. Um, in fact, one recent in estimate indicates that labor market mismatch, this skill mismatch problem, might account for between eight tenths and 1.4 percentage points of the increase in unemployment in this recession, and um, that's a fairly substantial magnitude. I would note, just as an aside, um, NPR this morning had a, a very excellent report. It was the second of a two-part report by Adam Davidson, uh, reporting from Greenville, South Carolina, um, and it just vividly describes what this mismatch, this labor mismatch problem looks like up close, and I'd recommend that to you. It should be easy to find on NPR. Another impediment to growth um, that's cited by a wide range of observers is the array of changes in tax and regulatory policy uh, that have occurred in the last two years or that are anticipated to occur shortly. We continue to hear of widespread and persistent anecdotal reports from our Fifth Federal Reserve District contacts about how uncertainty about regulatory policy changes is discouraging firms from undertaking new investment or hiring commitments. It seems plausible to me, although this, again, is one of these things like labor mismatch that's difficult to pin down quantitatively. It seems plausible to me that those effects could be having a, a substantial impact on uh, measured growth rates. 
apart from regulatory changes, this, we have this dire federal budget outlook. Um, and I think that imposes significant uncertainties on consumers and businesses. The path for the federal debt, this is uh, just repeating an old saw. You've, you've heard this for years uh, from me and, and, and others. The path for the federal debt under current law is not feasible and it will not happen. Something's going to change. One way or another, significant adjustments are going to have to occur, either through higher marginal tax rates on some taxpayers or cuts in program benefits for beneficiaries or reductions in government payrolls um, or reductions in supplier contracts. And you can see the way I described it there, that every one of those options involves some businesses or consumers that are going to be infected. And they're sitting there, we're sitting around now waiting to figure out what Congress is going to do, who's going to be affected by how much. And you can see from that why uncertainty um, is just a byproduct of the, um, uh, the, the gridlock that we're seeing um, about the federal budget uh, problem. So I've been talking about the impediments that have been weighing on U.S. growth, but there's one category of economic activity where um, we actually have an economy living up to um, our usual expectations um, about a rebound in growth in um, uh, an expansion. Business investment in equipment and software, and this is our broadest measure of business capital expenditures and uh, apart from structures, buildings, uh, factories and the like, um, it grew at a solid 7.6% uh, annual rate in the first three quarters of 2011 and grew even faster the year before that. Even with overall economic activity growing less rapidly than a typical re recovery, firms appear to continue to identify opportunities to deploy technology in new ways to reduce costs and imp improve business processes. And this suggests that the underlying forces of innovation and creativity, the forces that gave rise to that 3% trend line going back 150 years, are still at work in the U.S. economy. And this gives me hope um, that our resilience will show through in the end. Another contribution to growth has come from the trade sector. And this long run is going to be a, a, a positive contribution uh, to economic growth in the U.S. Exports have increased 23% since the end of the recession. And I think the prospects there are bright. There's a huge fraction of the world's population that resides in countries that have relatively low household incomes and that are growing fairly rapidly. Um, in these emerging economies, what's going on is the deployment of capital to equip a, a labor force that's growing. Um, and that creates a strong demand for U.S. supplied capital goods. As these productive workers move into what for them will be the middle class, they're going to want to purchase a range of consumer goods from U.S. firms, uh, everything from sodas to movies to video games. So I'm expecting emerging market growth to add uh, to overall economic activity, export growth and, and economic activity this year. On balance, the impediments to growth, including, you know, I'll tick them off again, housing stock overhang, uh, consumer deleveraging, skills deficits, mismatches, uncertainty about regulatory and tax policy. On balance, they have had the upper hand um, at, uh, until now. These represent difficult economic challenges. They're not likely to be solved very rapidly, uh, very quickly over time. Um, they will be solved, but not, it, it might not be that quickly. My takeaway from 2011 is the lesson that the impediments uh, to more rapid U.S. growth are deeper and more persistent than we thought a year ago. 
So as a consequence, I'm expecting only a modest improvement uh, for 2012. I think GDP growth is likely to expand at a pace of between two and two and a half percent. Positive growth, but a still disappointing pace. This is a forecast of growth at a moderate pace, not as rapid as in past expansion, but I emphasize we're still going to be moving ahead as economy. So let me briefly just mention three main risks to the outlook. Um, don't supply a forecast without mentioning risk, another lesson my predecessor taught me. Uh, first, um, my projection builds in a substantial slowdown in European economies in the first half of the year. I think the risk exists of a more pronounced and deeper recession in Europe, um, and if, if that comes true, I think we're going to see um, a, a dampening, a significant dampening in U.S. growth. But um, I've built in already to that two to two and a half number um, a substantial slowdown in Europe. Second, I think there's a chance that U.S. consumers could regain confidence at a more rapid pace uh, in the coming year and propel a stronger pickup in overall growth. Indeed, we got a consumer sentiment number this morning, and it, it increased uh, four, four points, a pretty dramatic increase. That's a, um, a couple of months now in a row that we've, we've, we've seen it pick up. I haven't studied the numbers completely, but I think there's signs that, that it's at least conceivable that consumers could gradually regain optimism and start spending more. And third, I've uh, mentioned that business investment spending, I, I expect to expand at a, a moderate but, but decent pace this year. We could miss on that forecast too. Uh, it's inherently hard to really get a handle on exactly what technology is supplying by way of opportunities uh, to firms that are making these decisions about technology outlays. Um, and that's, that's an area where we could easily miss um, either way. Key part of my outlook is for inflation. It's what we're responsible for at the central bank. In 2011, I think we were reminded that inflation can rise despite elevated unemployment. I think that's an important lesson to take away from the past year. In 2010, the inflation rate was 1.4%. And indeed, the middle, the last part of 2010, there were worries about excessive deflation or disinflation. In the first 11 months of 2011, that's all we have data for, inflation has averaged 2.5% at an annual rate. Obviously, the run-up in energy and food prices earlier this year played a big role in the increase, but the pickup inflation was fairly broad-based. Core inflation, which strips out the volatile food and energy sectors, was 9 tenths of a percent in 2010 and 1.7% in 2011 through November, nearly doubled. This higher inflation rate in 2011, despite unemployment averaging 9%, I think undercuts this, this old notion that slack in the labor market can be counted on to keep inflation contained. This lesson isn't new, of course. We learned it very well, in, uh, all too well, in fact, in the 1970s. Um, and I think we learned it a little bit again in, in 2004 and 5. Despite last year's run-up, I think the inflation outlook is pretty good. Uh, recent price trends have been quite favorable, and indeed, uh, we've had headline inflation numbers uh, very low in the last couple of months. The most likely outcome this year, I believe, is for overall inflation to average about 2%. Um, this uh, is subject to risks, as always. I think a rate notably below 2 is possible. Some people are forecasting 1.5%, and I think that's particularly true if global growth slows so much that it, it brings commodity and energy prices down uh, notably. But having said that, I still view the risk to inflation on the upside of my 2% forecast. A comparison of 2011 with the experience of 2004 and 2007 
um, I think, to me, suggests that an upswing in inflation at this stage in the business cycle, a couple years out uh, from the trough, um, is uh, typically long-lasting and not a transitory uptick. So no review of the economic outlook would be complete without a discussion of monetary policy and the policy outlook. Disappointingly slow growth often prompts calls for more central bank stimulus. But monetary policy is given credit for entirely too much influence on real economic activity these days, in my opinion. Monetary p policy is about inflation, that is to say the value of money. The effect of changes in monetary policy on real output and employment are largely by transitory byproducts of frictions that just delay the timely adjustment of prices to changes in monetary conditions. Over time, these effects dissipate and growth is governed almost entirely by the evolution of a society's technologies, its skills, resources, its trading opportunities. I think the macroeconomic experience of 2011 provides vivid illustration, despite large scale efforts to provide more monetary stimulus, growth disappointed, and inflation moved upward. So to summarize, I expect growth in the year ahead, uh, though at a moderate pace, and I expect inflation to remain in the neighborhood of 2%. I wish you all a happy new year, and my hope for the new year uh, is that it brings more modest expectations for monetary policy. <laughs> Thank you very much. Do we have time for questions? I think we have time for questions. Who wants to be first? Yes, ma'am. Good question. Um, Europe is struggling because in, in the early 1990s, they formed a monetary union, and they were ambiguous about the relationship between each country's fiscal policy. They acted as if they were headed down the path of a fiscal union, but they didn't do enough to actually create a fiscal union. So they've essentially been living with amb ambiguity about the extent to which they had a fiscal union in which they would essentially provide mutual support. So think to the United States, because it, you know when you're thinking about these kind of things, it's good to have some analogies. We have a monetary union. We have one currency in the United States, one monetary policy, one central bank, one monetary policy instrument, and the like. But we don't have fiscal union. We have a federal government, but we have all these states. And states are on their own in capital markets. So if one state gets in trouble or, you know, Jefferson County, Alabama gets in trouble, it's not assumed or it's not sort of – you don't have speculation on whether the federal government's going to – or some other state's going to step in and bail them out. In contrast, in Europe, they never answered that question, and so we answered that question in the 1840s. And that was after this process from the Articles of the Confederacy in the 1780s where um, – we, we didn't quite have it right to, you know, then the, the, con the Constitution we have, which formed the federal government and formed a monetary union with a single currency, 
But there was this ambiguity because in, in, the, in the Constitution, with that act, we also bailed out all the states. And so the, that was lingering over us until the 1830s or 1840s when it was settled politically, no, we're not going to bail out the states from the federal level. And what happened then? That's when all the states um, put in balanced budget amendments. That's when they had to establish their own credibility. Europe's working through this process of sorting out these institutional arrangements that can provide st stability. I, mentioned, I, I emphasize the word ambiguity because um, this is what bit us in 2008. Too big to fail, everyone knows about it. It's the, it's the idea that you can't, the regulators aren't going to let a big institution fail. We never really announced that. We never said for sure. And the weekend of Bear Stearns, it was up in the air. We could have gone either way. Policymakers could have gone either way on that. When we went one way, well, that encouraged expectations about the next problem institution to go one way. But it still wasn't settled. And after Wachovia, we had taken eight institutions and given them government support in seven different ways, seven different forms of support, seven different places in the capital structure. It was just going to be impossible to articulate a single coherent strategy a policy, a regime. It's like, all right, here are the new rules of the game. It was all bets are off. And so Paulson and Bernanke just had to go to Congress. It was the only way out uh, and uh, for us. So clarity about the government's role, clarity about government backstop, clarity about who bails out who, who has support from whom, that's essential. Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, another example, and then I'll, I'll, I'll stop ranting. Um, it's... Now they're words of the state, so for sure the government's behind them. But th that ambiguity about them is what, is what drove this process of, um, of, you know, of them having distorted incentives, access to funds on favorable terms, much cheaper than anyone else, because people thought they would likely be billed out, but it wasn't written down. We didn't have a regulatory regime to go with. Good question. We're off to a good start here. In the back... Ah, yes. So um, last Wednesday uh, afternoon, um, Chairman Bernanke, um, uh, we, the, the Board of Governors released, and Chairman Bernanke uh, mailed uh, to um, several members of Congress a white paper. So word about what a white paper is. Um, so there are a lot of economists at the Board of Governors, a lot of economists at the reserve banks around the system, and they, they're always researching things. Um, system economists have spent a lot of time, uh, even before 2006, on mortgage markets and housing markets. This, this paper does a, a good job of reviewing, providing a good overview of the challenges facing uh, the, the housing market right now. And it, that part of the paper echoes kind of what I've been talking, what I was talking about as well. Uh, you know, there's overhang of supply, credit standards have tightened, foreclosure uh, process is, is um, challenged. It went on to discuss some policy options that policymakers might want to consider that might um, have the effect, potentially, of increasing the demand for housing. So there's where I part company. I'm not so sure a convincing case is in there for either of these. The paper's careful about the trade-offs that, you know, yes, you could forgive principle, but you're going you're gonna to be um, essentially overriding private contracts that investors have entered into in those securitizations. Um, and there's some other measures that would cost Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and thereby cost the taxpayers potentially. Um, so our, our economists, all the economists in the system are encouraged to write 
research, to dig in, write, write the research up, share it with the profession. And that goes to, for policy ideas. We have economists at the Richmond Fed who've, who've put out proposal, policy proposals. They put it in a working paper where there's a disclaimer at the bottom that says, like I said at the beginning, it says the same thing. The views are my own and not necessarily those of the Federal Reserve Bank of Richmond. Or the, but a white paper doesn't have that disclaimer, so it's sort of an official position. And um, we, we've been criticized because the paper was making recommendations about fiscal policy. And since um, Bernanke's nomination hearings in late 2005, we in the system have generally taken the stance of not opining on specific fiscal policy measures. So it was, it was something of a, a break uh, from the past. And I think that's what's um, sparked this whole kerfuffle. Um, and uh, um, so it's, it's, it's provided some use as good reading, recommend it, thoughts, thought, uh, thought provoking, um, but th that's where it is. Shreedy? Ah, yes, indeed. Sure. Um, let me take it in reverse order. I'm not going to be able to say much about the. You know, I, I um, you know, we follow that market, um, and I, you know, I don't have anything to add to what's out there in analyst reports. Um, you know, the obvious thing is a lot of state and local uh, governments are have very challenging um, uh, pension li overhang of pension and medical liabilities um, for various political reasons, and it's you know, like Europe, it's a political problem to muster sort of the clarity of what those commitments are going to be and whether they're going to be fulfilled or not. And I, I, I don't have much to add to what's in the public domain on that. Um, the first part of your question had to do with the announcement that in the minutes of the last FOMC meeting, these minutes came out a couple weeks ago, it was revealed that we have decided um, to release our interest rate projections. So let me take a step back and give you a context for that. Four times a year, um, all the participants in the FOMC meeting are asked to submit our forecast for real GDP growth, um, the inflation rate, the overall inflation rate, the core inflation rate, and the unemployment rate for the next three or four years. And in addition, um, a long-range forecast, like after all the shocks have died out, uh, after the storm has passed, you know, how high is the ocean kind of thing. Um, so we submit those, and those are published as an addendum to the minutes of those meetings, and it's, a, it's called the Summary of Economic Projections. So what we decided was to include in that request for projections um, our interest rate forecast. So what we forecast for the average federal funds rate for the fourth quarter of each year going forward. And um, in addition, uh, when we expect, what quarter we expect it to occur that the federal funds rate rises first. Um, and some qualitative information on, you know, what's happening with the balance sheet. So this is just a natural extension of what we've already been doing because when we're asked for our projections, we're asked to assume appropriate monetary policy. So that's, you know, for me, that's what I think the best, you know, if I'm dictator, what, what's monetary policy going to be? And I write, I submit that forecast. 
So naturally, inflation goes to one and a half, which is what I've been advocating as a target for years. Um, but uh, you know, everyone has their own way of devising that. Well, this provides more information about what the committee members view as the thing we most likely ought to want to be doing with um, policy going forward. Now, a couple of important things about this. First, it's a forecast, not a commitment. Um, I, I, I made a statement early in my remarks about forecasts being the center point of, uh, or you know, in the midst of a, a band of plausible alternatives. I think that's the way to take these uh, interest rate forecasts, because if the data changes, our forecast for output and inflation are gonna change, and unemployment are gonna change, and so our forecast of interest rates are gonna change. And that's just uh, a corollary. People have known for years, monetary policy depends on how the data comes in. Um, so the second thing, and this is sort of a corollary of that, sort of an implication of that, is that it's not a separate independent policy instrument. It, you know, it, maybe once we could get away with fooling people and, you know, pushing the forecast down just to try and get people to think we're gonna be easier than we would, but we're not gonna be able to sustain that. Over time, what we write down has gotta be consistent with how we actually behave. And I, so it, the way to view it is, is as information about our reaction function in the future, um, not as a separate tool that we can independently jimmy um, you know, without affecting our credibility. Yes, sir. Healthcare legislation. That's been a hard, we, we debate that a lot in, uh, in the Richmond Fed and my economists. Um, so when, when we, we hear from a lot of small businesses that are sort of on this cusp where they're gonna be hit with this requirement to provide a, you know, a, a slug of healthcare costs for their, uh, their, their employees, um, th that's one of the things they'll mention as something that makes them nervous and afraid to make a commitment and expand their workforce in a permanent way. Uh, you know, having said that, the magnitude of those costs are unknown. It's it's not coming in for a little while. We don't really see it. So it might be more of a, you know, it might be sort of speculative on their part. Um, you know, for sure, it's going to change the, it's going to change patterns of compensation. And for sure, it's gonna affect a lot of firms' calculus about, um, you know, do I add employees or do I add machines at the margin? Um, do I want to expand um, or not? Um, but it's, I haven't seen any good, you know, um, compelling estimates of the, the magnitude of that. But it's bound to act as something of, of a tax. Now, it'll show up in lower wage rates, right? I mean, a, a firm can pay what a, the productivity of a worker justifies the way to think about compensation now is instead of looking at just hourly wage rates, look at compensation, because compensation is growing faster than wages, and it's compensation that's relevant for a firm, total all-in hiring costs. So um, for sure it'll mean lower wage growth. Um, so I, I, I kind of know in principle the direction of the effects, but not quite sure the magnitude by any means. Question in the front? Um, yeah, that's been amazing. Uh, I saw a great presentation a week or two ago um, by an economist from Pennsylvania. Uh, the exploration has affected our district. We hear about it a lot because West Virginia um, is included in sort of the Marcellus Shale region. The, the big play is in, in, in Pennsylvania, but 
there are a lot of plays in, in West Virginia as well, and a lot of the, the kind of support infrastructure you got to build uh, kind of comes through West Virginia because you got to get the pipelines down, and West Virginia is kind of where you want to go with it. Um, so we uh, we have a number of contacts that have been telling us about what just amazing um, burst of economic activity associated with that. Um, so natural gas is not oil, but you know you're seeing the conversion in the utility sector um, over to natural gas. Interest in that. Um, Cars are the big thing, though. Don't run on natural gas mostly now. Um, so uh, we'll, ha we'll have some, um, you know, there'll be some limits to how energy independent we can get. Um, but to the, to the extent that it, it puts a floor on sort of energy prices more broadly, because you can substitute between coal, natural gas, and oil, it'll keep oil prices a little bit lower than they would be and encourage consumption. So it's, it's kind of a double-edged sword there. but. It's a, a very promising prospect for the country um, that, uh, you know, and the world that we've got these, these um, energy, uh, these energy um, discoveries right at our doorstep. Particularly Pennsylvania, which is so close to the Northeast where so much consumption takes place, energy consumption takes place. Do you see anything in the back? Well, then, have a happy new year. Thank you very much.